Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Good morning, Trinity Church family. It's good to be with you uh, this morning as we begin uh, Sermon 1, part 1 of a four-part series looking at the ministry of Elisha, uh, the early part of Elisha's ministry in Israel. And so this morning, please turn uh, to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7, and then I'll pray, and then we'll begin. Just as you're turning there, let me uh, say that at the end of this morning's uh, kind of short devotion uh, after I've spoken and there's a hymn uh, there are going to be some questions appearing as well uh, right at the end please do use those I hope there are help over the the Sunday lunch table or later in the week if you want to do some more reflection on these uh, narratives on these verses they're they're wonderful passages but they're they're quite long we can't touch on everything and so I hope the discussion questions at the end uh, prove of some help to you as well two kings chapter four and verse one Uh, I'll read and then we'll pray. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he said, go outside. Borrow vessels from all your neighbours, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Amen. Let me pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The tighter that death closes in around us, all the more the search for life gets ramped up. When the nations see death draw near, marching towards them on the horizon, action is taken to preserve life. There's war bombing over London, Coventry, Glasgow. Send the children to the countryside, evacuate. We need to preserve their lives. A global pandemic breaks out like a wave sweeping across the the globe. It's coming. And the advice is stay inside, stay home, keep apart. There's death out there. We want you to live. Put all the politics aside of these last few months. Too much lockdown, too little lockdown, too late, too soon. Whatever we feel on that, put it aside. The action of the governments of the world has been taken to preserve life. And death has been close to us these months, hasn't it? For all of us. 
It's there, the daily six o'clock news, the numbers of COVID deaths. Each day, here's the new total. And each number, each statistic has a life behind it. An uncle, an aunt, a a father, a son, a, a daughter, a best friend. Many of us might have seen death come close in other ways. Unemployment, poverty, hunger, 40 million here in the US out of work. Government scrambling to provide free lunches and food. For some of us these months, death has come closer still, not just on the TV screens or news that something's happening out there. No, death has come closer. The loss of a parent, of a child, a a sibling, a death in our family. And again, perhaps a kind of form of death in other ways, the loss of a job, distance from friends, isolation, or other deadly diseases other than COVID, sucking and draining the life out of my body. Friends, in this little summer series in Two Kings, as we look at Two Kings 4, 5, and 6, we are arriving into a world of death, a land of death. Living in Israel in these days of Elijah, all you need to do is turn on the DAB digital radio, open the newspapers, put on the television, step outside, and you're met at your front door with the aroma of death. We're spending these four weeks in the nation of Israel, but not Israel as it was under David and Solomon. Remember, with David and Solomon, a united Israel, new feasting, defeat of enemies. Solomon's reign especially, it ended about a hundred years before where we are now in 2 Kings 4. And Solomon's reign was almost like heaven on earth. Eden almost restored, wisdom and light shining forth. The temple is built, God dwells with his people. Feasting and joy in the nation. But you remember, Solomon throws it all away for sex, for wealth, for military might. And as the king goes, so the people go. And so after Solomon, do you remember the kingdom splits? And we have God's son, God's nation divided, God's people divided. And so 10 tribes go north, Israel centered on Samaria, and two tribes go to the south, Judah and Benjamin centered uh, on uh, Jerusalem as their capital. And these few chapters, really, most of the events happen, are centered in the north. A hundred years or so after the land is brimming with light and life. It happens fast. And now death stalks the land like a rabid dog scurrying down the street, looking for another thing to bite. And so before coming to this passage, just survey that with me in these next few chapters. Get a sense of the year. I don't know what it's like for you somewhere, sometime when you go on holiday. I know that might be hard for us this summer, but a few days away somewhere, growing up as a family, we always tended to go to the, to the town hall or the city centre, find the tourist information, look at a map. What's going on here? What's the lay of the land? Just do that with me here and look at this world of death. Chapter 4, verse 1, we've just read it. This woman has lost her husband and creditors are there. Death and debt. Flick over to chapter 4, verse 18. The Shunammite woman, another woman. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 18, 19. And and there in verse 20, her son dies. Death of an only son. Chapter 4, verse 38. There's famine in the land. Death through lack of food and drought. And the little food they do have in verse 40, you see that there's death in the pot. In chapter 5, we're going to meet Naaman A leper, leprosy, the sign of exclusion, of being outside of death. And in chapter 6, we're going to cover two short uh, stories, narratives, 
the axe head being lost at the start of chapter 6, if you've got it there. The, the man loses the axe and he's, he cries out in verse 5 because the axe is borrowed. Again, it's difficulty and debt coming his way. And the last bit that we'll look at of chapter 6, verses 8 to 23, there's army, there's war. Verse 8, the king of Syria is war, warring against Israel. There's death in war. And to make matters worse, these days are made all the harder by the godless leadership over Israel. Just look back to chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 12 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that uh, his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he'd made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Jehoram, or Joram, as some translations have it, is king over Israel. And he's one of the Omride kings. The dynasty of Omri was a line of wickedness and evil. Omri to Ahab to Azahiah. Azahiah dies in 2 Kings 1. And because he has no son, the throne passes to his brother, Jehoram. Now Jehoram, verse 2, he, he puts away the pillar of Baal. Yes, but he still clings to sin. Not as bad as he could be, could be but he has no love for Yahweh. Essentially, we're saying the leadership over Israel at this time, the 10 tribes to the north, is no Hitler, but it's not much better than a Mussolini. And this is the king of Israel. So we've gone down to the town hall, to the tourist information, and you're probably thinking, trainer, why have you brought us here? Why have you brought us in these days of pestilence, COVID-19 throughout the world, in days of pestilence and darkness? Or that's what it feels like. Why have you brought us here? Well, it's because here in Israel, 800 800 years or so before Jesus comes into this mess of darkness and death and idolatry and sin and rebellion, God sends life. In these few weeks, we're going to find that God sends Elisha into darkness. And the darkness doesn't overcome him. There is light and life here. These chapters hold out immense hope for Israel that in the darkest days, in days that feel like winter but never Christmas, God breaks into his world and holds out life if we stay close to Jesus. So friends, I'm praying that these four weeks as we come and camp out in Israel, 800 years or so before Jesus, in a land drowning in death, we will find that even in a world like that, or we could say especially in a world like that, Jesus holds out real life, true hope and encouragement for dark days. And this little passage here, 2 Kings 4 verses 1 to 7, and this nameless widow and her sons begin to hold that out beautifully for us. Beautifully. For what we see here in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 4 is that there is life to be found in Jesus because he cares for his helpless and desperate people in dark days in deathly days there is life to be found in Jesus because he cares for his helpless and desperate people that is all I'm going to say to you today that is all that this passage says to us that Jesus cares for his helpless and desperate people So look at verse 1 again with me. The wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elijah, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children 
to be slaves. This is a desperate, desperate lady, is it not? And she cries to Elisha for help. So, so who is she? Well, she's a pastor's wife. The sons of uh, the prophets, the expression used there at the start of verse 1, is an expression to say that there were other prophets in that day assisting Elisha at that time. And her cry for help is this. This pastor's wife here, not only is my husband dead, but we've lost all our income. My husband has died and now the bailiffs are at the door and I can't pay. So they're going to take my sons to square off the debt. And do you see how little she has? Elisha asks what she has and all she has in the world of any value is one jar of oil. It's a desperate situation. This is the, the, the pastor or the missionary family serving the Lord in the Congo or Nigeria or wherever it is across the globe. Maybe even somewhere in Scotland. And in good faith, perhaps they, they borrow some money to fund a good work. But the husband dies. They lose all their source of income. And the money, the money needs paid back. Can you hear the pain and the sorrow there in that verse? We've served Yahweh all our life faithfully. We've faithfully poured ourselves out for him. My husband has, I have, our, our sons have. We've given up, we've sacrificed, we've loved him and served him. And we have nothing. So what do we learn from this widow? Well, first of all, we learn that we need to bring our desperation to Jesus. Bring our desperation to Jesus. Jesus cares for his desperate people. And we're about to see the care of Elisha, the prophet here in a moment. But before we get there, we want to see that we need to be faithful in bringing our desperation to him. Do you see her faith? She cries to Elisha, to God's servant. Now, next week, we're going to explore a little bit more about Elisha's role in ministry here. But but for just now, it's enough to say he's the prophet, isn't he? God's servant. God's prophet working in dark and death-filled days, in idolatrous days. And she goes straight to him. She offers no solutions. Just the problem. She says, I'm stuck. I'm broken. I'm about to be walked over here and exploited. You see, these creditors coming, they, they shouldn't be doing that. There's provision for widows in the law. And the fact the creditors are at her door means they've abandoned and they're not following the law of Moses, the law of the Lord. She's like Mary and Martha running to Jesus. Our brother is sick. Help. Or Judah casting himself before Joseph back in Genesis. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on my brother. When your son or your daughter is sick, we think nothing of taking them to the emergency room, to A&E for help. I'm desperate, help me. If a storm passes over, a tornado warning appears, it flashes up on your phone, we react immediately. Get inside, get to a safe place. And the Lord longs for us to develop a reaction inside of us, a reflex, as ready and as quick as that. I'm desperate. I'm going to go straight to Jesus. Do you remember the old hymn? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. What a peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. She is in trouble and she believes. And look at how 
much the Lord welcomes the genuine cry of help of the lowly. Let me just show you how much he cares and how much he wants to help her by by contrasting it with someone else. Flick back to chapter 3. Flick back to chapter 3. Israel's king is off to war. And as we know, he's a godless man. He's an idolater. He walks around with his finger up to God. But he wants God's help. He wants an airbag, a get out of jail free card because he knows he's in trouble. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Elijah said to the king of Israel, this is after the king of Israel comes to him for help. What have I to do with you? Elisha says, go to the prophets of your mother and your prophets of your father. But the king of Israel said, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of armies lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. You see, the king of Israel is going to war with the king of Edom and the king of Judah. But Elisha is saying to him, the king of Israel, the only reason you're going to see any help here is because you're with Judah's king. All things being equal. God has given the king of Israel, Jehoram, over to his lusts. I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with you. You don't love me. This faith isn't real. It's not real trust. But how different, how different for this nameless widow. Do you know that she actually gets more airtime than Israel's uh, other king, the the head of this dynasty, the, the king of Omri, Jehoram's grandfather? First of his line, a prominent king of Israel, a wicked man. Lots of extra biblical materials written about him. Go to the Louvre in Paris one day when we can travel again. And you'll see these old Moabite carvings. And they speak of Omri there. But in scripture, this nameless widow gets more airtime than him. Gets more help than Jehoram. Why? Because her heart is all out in trusting God, what does it tell us about her? What does it tell us about the heart of God? It tells us that there's life to be found in Jesus because he cares for his helpless and desperate people. When we come to him in faith, crying, fully dependent on him, we have no answers, but we need your help, Lord. So friends, bring your desperation to Jesus today, whatever it is, whatever it is. Cry to him, call on him, cling to him. In Christ, our great high priest, we have access to God in our troubles. Almighty God, creator of heavens and earth. The God who says, or of we say of him, even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. So what do you face today? What do you face tomorrow? And how might it be transformed with a greater assurance that God is with you? He cares for you in in your desperation and he wants you to come to him and cling to him for help. Friends, this is when I really wish I could look at you and see you and say, keep coming helpless and desperate to Jesus. Widows, widowers, those people, perhaps others living alone, in these COVID days, lonely, isolated. God deeply cares for you in your grief. Widows, widowers, God deeply cares for you in your grief, your sense of loss. Those of you in these days caring for aging husbands or wives or sick husbands or wife, God wants you to take your exhaustion, your tiredness to him. Single mums, homeschooling parents, 
God wants you to take that tiredness to him. He longs for you to cast your cares on him. Sunday school uh, children, truth group. Are you there? This is for you too. I hope you've not tuned out, but if you have tuned back in now, this, this is for you. How has it been being off school? What's been good? What's been hard? What's been hard about being away from other family and friends? Well, can I encourage you, Sunday school age kids, can I encourage you, truth groupers, get in the habit now of taking those things that are hard to Jesus. Get in the habit of taking our small cares that maybe feel like big cares to Jesus now in these days. So that when days that are even harder than these things, even though it's harder to imagine that they'll come, but days will come that might be harder than today. If you're in the habit of going to Jesus now, then you will run to Jesus then. You come to him. And the second bit of application that I want to give you Uh, is this the first one is bring your desperation to jesus he longs for you to do that and the second one is look for the kindnesses of the lord then once you've done it look for the kindnesses of the lord elisha gives her instructions doesn't doesn't he fill the jars and then verse four go in shut the doors and and pour into them and they do it She, she listens she trusts the word She goes in and this one jar of oil that flows and flows and flows until all the jars and vessels are full. And we see then in verse uh, 7, she tells Elisha and he says, go and sell the oil and it will pay your debts and you can live on the rest. Not only enough to pay off debts, but enough to live on. Lost husband is lost income, but God will now provide. It's wonderful, the Lord's kindness to her. But here's the rub. Many of us haven't had jars overflowing with extra oil, have we? Or not at least that we can see. So friends, this morning, as you look for the kindnesses of the Lord, do remember that God's kindnesses may not come in the way we prefer, but they are always there nonetheless. To illustrate this, listen to Samuel uh, Rutherford, my lockdown reading has been Samuel Rutherford's letters. There's a beautiful volume of all his collated uh, letters. Samuel Rutherford was a pastor in the uh, 17th century, and he was sent to, uh, to prison for faithfully preaching the gospel. And he was sent to prison to exile in Aberdeen. Uh, and this is what he wrote when in, in prison. He wrote this to a friend. He wrote this on June the 26th, uh, 1630. Now, I want you to understand he is in prison when he writes this. Okay, he is in prison uh, suffering for the gospel. Samuel Rutherford writes this. How blind are my adversaries? They have sent me to a banqueting house, to a house of wine, of lovely feasts of my Lord Jesus, not to prison in exile. Now, he is in prison when he's writing this, right? It's almost too... Too much, too hard to get under the skin of what Rutherford is saying. But he's saying that even in my affliction, in prison, God's kindnesses are being showered upon me. That prison has become a place of banqueting, a house of wine and of lovely feasts. Now I'm sure he would rather be out of prison. But in coming to Jesus, God has met him in his affliction and is meeting with him in great kindness. 
And actually, the more you read of Rutherford, the greatest kindness that he experiences in his time in Aberdeen, in exile and in prison, is that God gives him more of himself. You just pick up five or six of his letters and read through it, and you see the repeated phrase, I am having more of Jesus here. Friends, like this widow, some of our deliverances, God's kindnesses, may come quickly. And they may be in abundance and overflowing, but some might have been long. And perhaps for others, we're still waiting. But friends, I want you to know in it all that God cares for his hurting people as he longs to make us like Jesus and draws to him. And so that brings us to close with this. Whatever you're facing today, whatever you're facing, remember God's greatest kindness to us. If you're struggling to see God's blessing and goodness in the ordinary things, well, we can all remember God's greatest kindness to us in sending Jesus. We could not have been more helpless. We could not have been more spiritually dead. But Christ, drawing near while we were still sinners, died for us. To give us new life, hope of resurrection, and world made new, world without end. So friends, take heart today. Take courage wherever this finds you. And know that in dark and death-filled days, there is life to be found in Jesus. Because he always cares for his helpless and desperate people. Amen.